live from the mist and shrouded mountaintop fortress that is X and Y Communications Headquarters. You're listening to the world famous Mountaintop Podcast. And now, here's your host, Scott McKay. Hello again, everyone out there, and welcome to yet another episode of the world-famous Mountaintop Podcast. My name is Scott McKay, at Scott McKay on Twitter, Scott McKay on YouTube, Real Scott McKay on Instagram, and the Facebook group at the Mountaintop Summit, and as always, www.mountaintoppodcast.com. I'll tell you what, we've done nearly 150 shows around here, gentlemen, and the topic of evolutionary psychology very rarely comes up. And I don't think that's really been on purpose. It's just simply a matter of how the guests roll in and what the topics tend to be. Well, thanks to one of you, I became acquainted with the work of Steve Stewart Williams, who is an associate professor at the University of Nottingham at the campus that's located in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. He is a lecturer in psychology and the author of a book with a rather auspicious title, That title is The Ape That Understood the Universe. And I'm going to take this quote from his Amazon listing that caught my attention. How would an alien scientist view our species? What would it make of our sex differences, our sexual behavior? And I loved that idea. And in getting to know Steve Stuart Williams, I agreed with him on the title of how human sexual relationships are uniquely, quote-unquote, strange in the animal kingdom. We've never done a show on that for sure, and it just seems like a wildly fun topic. So without any further ado, welcome, Steve. Welcome to the show. Hey, Scott. It's great to be here. Uh, Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, man. It's my pleasure, as I say often, because this is something that I've never heard talked about before, but I believe strongly that if we start thinking about it, People are like, yeah, you know what? Human beings, the way we attract each other, the way we mate, the way we relate, even the way we actually have sexual intercourse is extremely unique in the animal kingdom. So what led you to this thought process? Give us a little bit of a backstory there. Uh, Well, the way that I got into evolutionary psychology um, was that I picked up a book uh, by the name of The the Moral Animal um, by Robert Wright. And... It just uh, completely grabbed me, and, and the main thing that grabbed me was the, the evolutionary explanation that he that he laid out uh, for human sex differences and how they fit in with the rest of the animal kingdom. Although we are we're certainly unique in the animal kingdom in a number of different ways, we're also quite similar in, in a number of ways as well. So the, the two sides of the coin, uh, both of which in my book, the alien scientist comes along and um, this alien is confused by both things: the things we have in common with other animals, also the things uh, the things that are unique. So, so yeah, a lot, of, a lot of the sex differences that we see in our species, you see in other animals as well. Um, you see them in, in most mammals, you see them in, in many birds, uh, just many families of animals. So the fact, for instance, uh, that, that men are larger than women on average, the fact that men are more aggressive on average, more prone to violence uh, than women, um, this is very, very, very common among the mammals. Uh, the fact that, that males on average are more interested uh, in seeking out multiple partners and casual sex and, and sort of no strings attached sex. That's uh, found in our species, found as well as in, in many other species, many other mammals. Um, at the same time, we're, we're different as well in many important ways uh, from other species. Um, in a lot of species, what you find uh, is that the males compete with each other for access to females and the females choose from among the males. 
and, and it's, it's really quite black and white in that kind of way. So the males compete, the females choose. But it's not quite like that in our species. In our species, both sexes compete for the best mates they can get hold of, not just the males. The males engage in maybe more kind of crazy competition that's more common among males than females but it's actually the case that both sexes compete and it's not the case that only females are choosy so both sexes are choosy about their partners especially for long-term uh, mates that males are almost as choosy as the females so that's one of the the big differences it makes us very different among uh, the mammals in particular now that's extremely interesting to me that you out of the blue assuming that you're not as familiar with my work as maybe the listeners are which i wouldn't hold against you of course we've just met it is amazing indeed that you would bring up this idea of both men and women being choosers in our species. Yeah. A lot of guys out there, often in the context of feeling sorry for themselves and kind of hating on women a little bit, will cite other studies of evolutionary psychology and even evolutionary biology relative to other species saying, you know what? Women are always the ones, the females are always the ones who are doing the choosing and men just go around chasing and competing for the right to procreate. And men are sick of that and they think women have all the power. But here you come along and you're agreeing with what I've always said, which is in our species, if you deserve what you want, as I say, you have earned the right to expect that the other gender of your species is going to find you desirable. And a lot of guys are busy chasing women. Meanwhile, women are thinking in many ways that men have all the power because they're the ones who do the asking out. They're the ones who do the approaching. But meanwhile, men are left thinking women have all the power because, you know what, they get to reject all these guys who are approaching them all the time. What's often left in the lurch in that whole swarm of argument is that it's the desirable female members of that species and also the desirable male members of that species who have this power to choose. No one even considers, coincidentally enough, that all the people who are undesirable are being categorically ignored through that whole process. And they're the ones who are crying foul. The other gender has all the power. So I love what you're saying about that. What's your take on how human beings can get to that point? They can ascend to that point where they are able to choose the mate they want. I'd love to hear your take on that. Sure. So it's really interesting. So the um, the view that you're talking about where people think uh, the males um, do all the competing and females do all the choosing, that, that is really common, I think. It's common, I think, misunderstanding um, of evolutionary psychology. I've come across it uh, quite often among students and the like. Um, and I think it's based on a nugget of truth, but people are just getting it muddled. Um, they're turning a, a sort of average difference into a categorical difference. I think where you do see a bigger difference in terms of choosiness uh, is in relation to, to short-term sex or, or casual sex. I think where that's the case, you find that women on average are notably choosier about their sexual partners than men are. It's just in the long-term context, um, people are both, both both sexes become uh, quite choosy about their mates. So obviously, you know, a man, if he has the option in a short-term context, he's going he's gonna to want the cream of the crop. But if, uh, if that's not an option, men are more likely to sort of sh shrug their shoulders and think, fine, this is fine. Whereas women are, tend to be a lot choosier about them. Um, and there's some, some pretty good evolutionary reasons uh, why, why that is the case. You know, something that comes to mind there, and I've written about this in the past, is that even when women are having casual sex, when they're going home with a guy uh, from a bar, or it's a first date with someone they met online, and they're feeling kind of horny. They still like that fantasy of this could be my Prince Charming, that this is a guy I could Indeed. spend long term with, even though they know that's absolutely out of the question, not even necessarily something they want. You know, or you feel maybe that's the case sometimes? 
I do think that's the case sometimes. I think um, I, I'm sure, you know, there's many, many different kinds of people. So I'm sure there are um, some women for whom that's not the case. And, and there also that is the case for some men as well. Um, but but there is research uh, suggesting, as well as just kind of squares with everyday experience, right, that that's more common among women than it is among men, that they're more likely to sort of accidentally uh, fall for somebody that they were planning just to have a casual fling with uh, than men are. Although, you know, absolutely both sexes can do that. Do you know the basic sort of the evolutionary rationale uh, for why it is um, that on average men are more interested in casual sex and women are choosier about their casual sex partners? Well, I would imagine you're going to cite something to the effect of sperm is cheap and women, when they get pregnant, yeah. they're kind of committed for nine months. Yeah. That's typically the storyline. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it's not it's not just about sperm and eggs. Um, it's it's more about rental investment in its entirety. So it's the fact that I think the, the easiest way I find to communicate it to my students and, and other folks um, is, to, is to say, if you imagine that a guy would have, say, um, five sexual partners in the course of a single year, potentially he could have five offspring, um, all of whom would inherit any genes that push him in that direction. Um, if a woman, on the other hand, would have five sexual partners, she's probably going to have no more offspring than she would if she only had one sexual partner in that time. And obviously other, other factors come in as well. But what this means is that it created a selection pressure on, on males in our species throughout our evolutionary history just to have a, just to have a stronger desire for multiple partners, for sexual variety, um, and, and for just sort of no strings attached sex. And the average level of that desire is stronger among men than among women. And it's amazing how women don't necessarily understand that difference between men and women, and then they kind of resent it once they're confronted with it, don't they? Yes, and vice versa, right? So so men as well don't understand women's reticence sometimes, um, and you can get resentment in both directions coming from the fact that men and women are, are not understanding the differences between them between themselves. Do you think there's some truth to the simple fact that modern birth control and STD prevention is so powerful and so effective that women are actually loosening up their grip on that mindset yeah. and starting to behave a little bit more like men? Or do you think that that's something that's archetypally ingrained and basically will never change? Well, I kind of think a bit of both. So I do think that um, because birth control and that kind of thing lower the potential costs of, of uncommitted sex, they mean you're less likely to get pregnant. Women are going to worry about it less. And so uh, casual sex is more more of an option for them uh, because of that. And that's why I think since the pill came along in particular, casual sex has become more common. It's become more acceptable. Um, at the same time, I think that th you still do find the sex difference in terms of how willing men and women are to engage in ca casual sex, how choosy they are about their casual sex partners. And so I think that the fact that that persists, even in the face of birth control, is actually quite a good argument for the fact that there is an innate contribution. There is a, an evolutionary contribution as well. It's not uh, the, the sex difference we used to see, that isn't just because women were worried about getting pregnant. Um, it's There's also this contribution that even when pregnancy is no longer an issue, you still do find the same sex difference persisting. Yeah, you know, a lot of guys bemoan feminism with a capital F, the movement. Sure. Um, that in many ways bashes men and criticizes men famously. Yeah. But the latest wave of feminism in many ways is trying to reclaim women's sexual freedom. You know, you have the movement's Within feminism nowadays, where women are trying to reclaim the word slut and announce their right mm. to screw as many people as they want as men have. But what you're saying is you're thinking that's kind of a fringe. That's not something that's going to take hold long term because of just how we're wired. Yeah, I, I think uh, possibly, yeah. So, I mean, certainly 
There is there is a strong evolutionary push in a certain direction. I think uh, social forces that do influence people's behaviour, but they're only part of the story. So I think you know it, it does have some impact. Um, and I agree with you. I think um, feminism is quite a mixed bag, right? There's all sorts of different ideas, some of which are reasonable, some of which less so. Um, <laughs> you don't have to be politically correct about that, by the way. Don't let the fur fly. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, you know what? Uh, with these guys, a lot of them are dating. Some guys nowadays listening to this show certainly are in relationships. Uh, it's a show for all guys. But definitely a large part of the demographic is still dating, and perhaps they were dating when the pickup artist movement was popular. That's kind mm, of a thing yeah. of the past now. But one thing I can't help but think about when you're talking about similarities between how other animals conduct their mating process relative to humans is the term peacocking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And of course, this was a staple in terms of the vernacular used by this group of people to help them feel like they felt a part of something bigger. Peacocking, mm -hmm. of course, refers to showing off and looking the part of perhaps a flamboyant male presence in the hopes of attracting female attention. And of course, a shining example of how that works in the greater animal kingdom would be how peacocks will, you know, spread their tail and strut, yeah. you know, around in a circle to gain the attention of females. You know, look at my beautiful tail. Absolutely. Peacocking for men has taken many forms, such as having an LED belt buckle or dressing in crazy clothes, all the way up to the assertion that the main reason men spend tons of money on expensive cars is purely to get laid. You know, now that's offensive to the ears of any automotive enthusiast who believes if you have a Porsche <laughs> GT3, it's because of the car, not because of the chicks. Yeah. But you know, you can't help but notice when you're outside a club at one o'clock in the morning in South Beach, Miami, there's three guys outside revving up their V12 Lamborghinis hoping chicks will exactly. hop Exactly. So just like, yeah, exactly. Just like a peacock spreading its uh, tail feathers, right? So that's natural. That's not something freakish. Yeah. Does it work? No, no. It fits in quite nicely um, with uh, with the peacocks. I think that it does work. Certainly, um, these kind of things do work on, on some women, right? Different women want different stuff. Um, I think... So, so I've known plenty of guys who are uh, like single guys who are into the game and various, uh, you know, the, the book, the game, sure, uh, and all that kind of stuff, and this peacocking concept. Um, uh, the game, I think, um, had a sort of a bit of a, a gabbled understanding of evolutionary psychology, and they were certainly right. So there certainly is this phenomenon you're talking about where the peacock spreads its feathers, and um, the the peahen chooses uh, the male with, with the best feathers, and that, that's kind of actually an example of what I was talking about earlier where it's kind of taking a sex difference uh, found in the animal kingdom kingdom and, and exaggerating it. So the, um, the peacocks, they um, the males display, and they're all gaudy and colorful and they have these amazing tails. The peahens, on the other hand, the female peacocks, uh, they are relatively drab. And even though you do find peacocking in our species, things aren't quite as uh, polarized or black and white as that. And in our species, actually, you, you have both sexes peacocking. So, so both sexes, uh, for instance, dress up in a way that's meant to catch uh, the eye of the other sex, right? Like if we, if we were like peacocks, if you went to a club or whatever, the males would be revving the cars and they'd be dressed up in, in cool clothes or whatever and, and dancing and being evaluated by the females. The females, on the other hand, wouldn't be doing any of that. And they wouldn't be dressing up nice. They wouldn't be putting on makeup. They'd just put on a, a nice pair of comfortable shoes, uh, just a nice old jumper. They wouldn't um, do their hair or anything like that. Um, obviously, that's not what, what you see at bars or clubs or anything like that. Both sexes, basically, a peacock and both sexes are trying to um, catch the other's eye. 
Um, I think that's not to deny that there are sex differences here. There are there are differences, right? So men seem to do more of it, and men seem to do it more intensely. And where you see the really crazy kind of um, showing off, that that's much more commonly among uh, men than among women. But that's not to say that the men are doing the showing off alone, as in peacocks. We're, we're sort of we're not like that. We have we stuff in common, but um, that big difference is that we're both showing off. You know, women will try to front with comments like, oh, we ladies get dressed up for each other. You know, we buy the cute little Kristen Louboutin shoes and these Carolina Herrera dresses because we want to look good for each other. And I call such BS on that. Women <laughs> want to look great for the right man, but they also yeah, don't want to yeah, attract yeah. the attention of men they're not attracted to. True. And probably for other women as well. And yep. it's not necessarily that, that men are thinking about I'm going to do this to attract a mate, or it's not necessarily that women are thinking, I'm going to do this to attract a mate. They don't necessarily need to be thinking about that at all. It's just that people have a desire to present themselves in a nice way. Why do they have that desire? It's because people in the past who had a desire to present themselves in a good way had more offspring than people who didn't have that desire. So you see the, the desire becomes more and more common, and, and it's, it's now the norm. It's been selected. But that, that doesn't necessarily mean that people are thinking about the function that it serves in terms of attracting a mate, passing on one's genes. Well, you know, I'll tell you what, Steve. I um, am really glad I wasn't born either a seahorse or a praying mantis. <laughs> but I have to tell you, well, I've given a lot of thought as well to how grateful I am that we're not like the bird kingdom. Because you're right. The females, you know, presumably so that they can stay camouflaged and safe while the male draws attention to himself and acts the hero vis-a-vis -vis predators or whatever. And yep. the females are more drab in the bird kingdom. And the males of the species are nearly always, if not plumed the same way, they're plumed in a much more beautiful manner. And I would argue that that is a key difference in the human kingdom. I think women are far more aesthetically beautiful human beings than men are. I think you're right. Yeah, I kind of see it as women are the Ferraris and men are kind of like the pickup trucks. Yeah, 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 exactly, which is the exact opposite of what you see in peacocks, right? And peacocks, the males are gaudy and the females are drab. And if anything, like you're saying, it's the other way around in our species. That That is one thing that alien scientists would be just mystified with when he first uh, saw us, um, the fact that that has been kind of reversed. In the book, I say that um, like if peacocks had pornography – It'd actually be the, the females that would be looking at the males, not vice versa. It'd be the males that would be complaining about being sex objects. Um, and it's just reversed in our species. And there are various, various interesting ideas about why that is the case, um, why it is that, that men put more of an emphasis on good looks and on youthfulness in a mate um, than, than women do. You know, but both want a good-looking mate, right? But just the average level of how important that is, that, that is stronger for men than for women. Talk to me about the title of your book real quick, kind of as an aside here. The Ape sure. That Understood the Universe. Does that kind of hark to this idea of alien species? Where did, where did the title originate? What's the etymology there? It actually came from quite a, um, a strange place. I was, I was at my in-law's place, and I just woke up one morning, and I was still kind of half asleep, and then just suddenly that phrase just popped into my mind. The Ape That Understood the Universe just popped into my mind. I thought, oh, cool. That would be a cool name for a book. Uh, and then so I wrote it down, kind of forgot about it. And then a few years later, when I was ready to write this book, I thought, well, that title, that title fits perfectly, really, because the book looks at both evolutionary psychology and, and sort of biological side of things, but it also looks at the cultural side of things. So the ape part, that's referring to the, the biological side of things and the, the evolutionary contribution to, to why we are the way we are, whereas the understood the universe, that applies, that's the cultural side, right? So that refers, in, in particular, it refers to science, which I, which I say in the book is kind of the jewel in the crown of our cultural achievements. 
Um, it's just this amazing thing that we've created. Uh, so, so the kind of knowledge that we have of the universe isn't innate. It's, it's a product of culture. So that refers yet yeah, to the, the cultural side of things, which is the, the other aspect that I talk about in the book, cultural evolution. Well, the striking part of the title is that none too subtle implication that a less evolved primate than a human perhaps understands the nature of how this all works better than we do, perhaps because we try to complicate it too much or overthink it. Is that what you're getting at? Uh, it's not, not exactly what I'm getting at, but that is actually true, right? I think um, our intelligence and our cultural capacity, it's a, it's a real double-edged sword. So on the one hand, it's given us the power to, to understand the universe to a degree that no other animal can even uh, begin to understand it, right? It's even just the fact that we understand that we're on a globe that's going around the sun and we've got the moon orbiting us and we're part of the solar system. All this kind of stuff is far beyond the cognitive reach of any other species. But at the same time, I think because we've got this kind of open-ended intelligence, we're also capable of getting much more confused about the nature of reality than any other animal. So greater highs, greater, reaching greater heights than other animals, but also capable of just getting completely uh, bogged down and mistaken and, and going crazy, going insane in a way that other, other animals cannot. Another popular discussion amongst evolutionary biologists and psychologists surrounds the whole idea of monogamy. Do you believe that human beings, perhaps like some other species, and then again, unlike other species, are meant to be monogamous, or do you think that's a social construct? Oh, well, I think it's a bit of a both. Um, I think that we have an evolved tendency to form pair bonds, um, among other things. So we have an evolved tendency to, to fall in love. I think that uh, the fact that we fall in love uh, with each other is just something people everywhere do. Uh, even if they don't believe it, even if they don't want it, it just it kind of automatically happens. We get jealous if the person that we're in love with gets involved with somebody else. So we tend to want, most people at least tend to want kind of exclusive pair bonds if possible. Um, now, that's not to say that we're meant to be monogamous necessarily. We just have a sort of push in that direction. Other kinds of uh, mating patterns do happen, though. Uh, promiscuous mating, for instance, um, that comes naturally to human beings as well. Um, polygyny is, is quite common across the cultures of the world. It is reasonably common for, for men to have more than one mate. It's like a small number of men within most societies, in fact, um, will have uh, more than one uh, female partner, uh, which is called polygyny. Um, and I think all of those things come naturally to us. So I think in societies where polygynous marriage is banned, and, and you're not allowed to do it, and it's against the law, um, that is where it starts becoming a social construct. So the idea that you you can only ever marry uh, monogamously is bringing the law into it, and that's, that's the social aspect. But that's not to say that our monogamous kind of inclinations or our pair bonding inclinations, that's not to deny that those do have um, a basis in human nature, because I think they do. You mentioned falling in love, which is, of course is a greatly romanticized state of human emotional being. Do you think it's sociologically sound to purport that one could theoretically be in love genuinely with more than one person at the same time? Uh, Scott, that, that's a really tricky question. I, <laughs> I love tricky questions, don't I? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not 100% sure. Well, I'm hoping you're sure. a tricky guy who can answer it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll do my best. I think – We're hanging on edge with bated breath for an answer. Um, I'll give you an, an answer that I think is right, but I'm not not 100% so sure. So I think there is some evidence that when people fall in love, um, they actually become less interested in other people in that kind of first flash of, of romantic love. I think at the same time, though, it is possible for people – to have a kind of like an attachment, like a loving attachment, not, not that initial kind of crazy infatuation, but a longer term attachment to a person, but also to be sexually attracted and kind of infatuated with others. That does seem to be possible. Some people seem to do it. I should also add, though, that I think there's no one rule for the entirety of, of humanity. There are some people who do seem to be able to have 
relationships with more than one person at the same time, and they have deep bonds with both of those people. I think probably more common, though, is that people tend not to be able to do that, not to be happy in, in those kind of relationships. They tend to prefer to um, have, a, have a deep bond with just, just one person. But people do differ. Here's an interesting question that I just thought of. How about the rest of the animal kingdom? Are there any other species other than human beings who legitimately fall in love with a partner or maybe even feel infatuated? I mean, we know that anybody who's ever had a male and female dog around the house trying to breed them and make puppies knows they certainly can get horny for each other when they get in heat. Yeah. But human beings aren't in heat per se. I mean, you know, some would argue from a purely biological perspective that when women are fertile, they tend to be hornier. But there's still some conjecture surrounding that. It's not like, right. you know, going into rut like a freaking deer, you know. That's so, right. I mean, how right. do you yeah. think animals – I mean, it may be something the world may never know. But in your opinion, how do you think animals process sexual attraction to each other and can they really develop a bond with each other? Yeah, that's another tricky question, and it's a, and it's a good question. I think we know a little bit about that. I think um, that certainly pair bonding is found in other in other species. You don't find it in very many mammals. I think though that maybe about five percent of mammals you do find pair bonds, and males and females form these long term bonds. It's actually a lot more common, believe it or not, among birds. So in about 90% of birds, um, the males and the females, they, they form these enduring pair bonds. Um, so in some sense, they are forming bonds. Now, I think the, the really tricky question is whether you want to say that they're in love with each other. So there's some kind of bond, but is it similar to the kind of love that we have in our species? And I think that it's certainly – it's not exactly the same. In humans, it's a much more sort of cognitively complex kind of emotion that we have. Um, I can believe that in some other mammalian species – they do have emotions toward one another that you could describe as, as love. Um, maybe more so, though, for their for their offspring than for sexual partners. Although, or, although maybe you know, givens, for instance, they form pair bonds. Perhaps they ha they have some kind of emotions for each other that that it would be reasonable to call love. With birds, I think it's more complex. I think that they're um, so much more remotely related to us that I'm more hesitant to say that they fall in love with each other. Definitely form bonds, but who knows if they're infatuated in the same kind of way that would be recognizable uh, to us. I mean, who knows, right? It's just a fascinating who knows exactly? theoretical question. One thing uh, that I, I would certainly think can't be argued because it's observable in plain reality is that certain high-functioning mammals, I'm thinking dogs, uh, Pigs have been talked about. Absolutely, elephants have brotherly love. They have phileo. They have familial love for each other because when one dies, they mourn the loss yeah. of that peer or that family member, and they do yeah. it openly, and it's clear that's what they're doing. Now, whether they process eros as love or just simple biological horniness, I think that's the question yeah. you're alluding to as being so tricky, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I completely agree. They, they get so attached to each other and it, it just looks so much like what we see in human beings that I just can't see any reason to deny that they are genuinely grieving. They're very, very sad about that. They form these deep bonds. The bond is cut off and they are just confused by it and upset by it in a similar way that we are. Well, you know, the family dog will mourn the loss of another pet or one of the yep, family yep. members, as we will. Yeah, absolutely. That's such an interesting bond between dogs and humans, isn't it? It's yep. unprecedented it's in the animal kingdom. It, yeah, it really is. It's very, very – you don't see members of different species. It's not the case that um, horses and pigs start living together and, and forming deep bonds uh, with each other, right? But, but then you find that humans and dogs do. Well, if they do, it makes a YouTube video. 
That's for sure. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Whereas we just take it for granted in our species, right? It doesn't even seem uh, that strange that we're, we're living with these descendants of wolves, basically. We, we share our house with, with wolves and – uh, yeah, and it's kind of strange. And I guess, though, in a certain sense, it's not as strange as it might initially look. Um, they certainly, like you say, they, they form quite deep bonds with each other. And we know that the sort of the uh, the neural underpinnings, like the kind of brain structures that are involved in forming those bonds, um, are actually quite similar. We, uh, our brains are very, very similar to to those of other mammals. So that's another reason to think that similar kind of stuff is going on in terms of um, in terms of the bonding, in terms of the love in these other animals, as in our own species. You know, Steve, I don't think this conversation would be quite complete unless we talked about similarities and differences in actual sexual intercourse between other species and human <laughs> beings. And I'll tell you what comes to mind first is something that I read about a long time ago and kind of rocked back on my heels and said, damn, it's true. Human beings are the only species. You know, there may be some outliers. I'm sure you'll correct me if there are. But largely, human beings are the only species that have missionary sex face-to-face -face looking yeah. each other in the eye. I mean, doggy style is really kind of animal style. <laughs> it is. It's, it's, it should be called mammal style, right? Not that In-N-Out Burger's uh, hidden menu is any danger of having its uh, vernacular changed, but, you know, <laughs> doggy style really is animal style. And I yeah. love your comments on that. Why don't other animals change positions? <laughs> we love doing that. Why don't they? I mean, yeah. don't they want to hit it a different way, or what's up with that? <laughs> um there is actually – there's at least one other species that does, and that, that's the bonobos. So the bonobos, um, they mix it up a bit, and they are sometimes known to have face-to-face um, uh, -face sex in, in missionary position, right? Uh, involved good in deep, old sort of bonobos. We got a good old bonobos, exactly. They, they, they broke all those kind of general rules. <laughs> um, but they're among the minority, and I guess maybe they offer a clue, though, as to why we – why missionary position is so common in our species. You find it as well in bonobos. Bonobos have very, very close bonds um, among – among sexual partners, they they don't form exclusive bonds. They sort of they all have sex, everyone has sex with everybody, but nonetheless they do form deep bonds with lots and lots of different individuals. And it's been argued that that's part of the reason that they evolved to have uh, face to face sex, and that, us as well, right? So we we form these deep pair bonds in a way that most mammals don't. And perhaps face to face sex is part of that. We have long long eye contact, which makes it uh, much more emotional. So I think that's probably that's one part of it. Now in terms of why we mix it up so much, right? Like um, multiple positions and all these kind of things i think that's probably a cultural thing so i'm not sure if we sort of instinctively do that i think we just sort of we made up a number of um of hacks really to try to keep things interesting and to stimulate ourselves in, in novel kind of ways um we've sort of uh culturally come up with all these different um sexual techniques and we tell each other about them and try them out and try out new things and then add to this kind of uh stockpile of techniques that we can use to kind of wring the most pleasure that we can out of sex so I think that's, that's kind of a cultural thing as well. I, I think probably sex was nowhere near as interesting 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 years ago to start building up the stockpile of, of techniques and tactics. The thought that crosses my mind sometimes when watching National Geographic Channel is how are animals processing sexual intercourse? Is it simply a biological urge that's getting satisfied based on the need to procreate and further the species? Or are they getting any real sexual enjoyment out of it. I mean, does it really thrill a male lion to quote unquote get laid or is it more biological <laughs> duty? I mean, I think a lot of guys probably, if they yeah. are deep thinkers at all, have probably wondered about that. I mean, are humans unique in that we just really frankly get off on having sex and screwing each other for sport? 
Yeah, I think we're unique in the extent to which we do. So I'm sure that lions um, and other mammals, I think they enjoy it, right? And that's why they do it. So I think um, the, the kind of carrot that natural selection puts in front of us, um, it puts in front of lions and, and other, other species to get them to engage in insects so that they can have offspring. Um, the carrot that it puts in front of us is, is pleasure, right? So they do it because it's pleasurable. But for most other mammals, it takes much less time. It's much quicker. And so I think they probably have a lot less, they derive less enjoyment from it for that reason. So that's another thing that's unique about us, actually, is the, is the fact that sex lasts quite a bit longer uh, for human beings than it does for most other mammals. Um, and again, one suggestion, I'm not, not completely sure why that is, but one suggestion is that it's because it's all part of the fact that sex for us is... It's obviously partly about having offspring. That's a big part of it. But it's also about forming bonds between people, enduring bonds. And to make it more pleasurable, our natural selection has made sex somewhat longer among our species than among others. Well, we're just more evolved, damn it. And with that, yeah. with the evolution comes the spoils of victory of, frankly, realizing what every other species has been missing out on in terms of the joy of screwing each other. <laughs> exactly. It may be just that simple. <laughs> Yeah. You know, Steve, you're the expert on this. Sometimes people come on who are dating coaches or relationship coaches, and I banter back and forth with them freely sharing ideas. But I am going to fully acknowledge that I may not have been gifted enough in the science that you teach so wonderfully and so effectively enough to know what questions to ask. So if there's anything you would like to tell these guys um, that's really interesting, kind of as a final thought or two, about how humans are different and how they go about their sexuality than other animals. Go ahead and hit us with it. I'd love to have a couple of gold nuggets before we sign off. I think so. One thing I've been thinking about lately, there seems to be quite a strong tendency these days for people to want to minimize or, or even completely eliminate sex differences. Um, and I think that's often based on the idea that sex differences are entirely a product of uh, society and culture and learning. Um, I think they're not entirely a product of those things. I think that a lot of the sex differences that we see, and, and especially the ones that recur across, across cultures, they're much deeper seated than that. And, and they're kind of baked into the nature of human nature to an important degree. And I think because of that, I think um, the effort to, to fight against these sex differences is maybe a little bit uh, counterproductive in some cases. Obviously, we, we want to get rid of sexism to the extent that we can do that. But um, the idea that we should just get rid of any sex differences or that sex differences are necessarily uh, inherently bad, um, I, don't, I don't particularly think that's a, that's a good idea. I don't think, for instance, that it's a problem if boys and girls have different toy preferences. Um, that seems fine to me. Um, my motto is kind of let them be themselves. Give, give them all the options. Uh, let people be gender atypical if they want to be. But if they're, they're gender typical, fine. Just let them be themselves. That's my view. And likewise, with occupational choices, it doesn't have to be the case that men and women go into different occupations at exactly the same rate. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. That yeah. is something that I'm glad wasn't left on the table. Certainly, as evolved human beings and, quote, unquote, the top of the food chain, there's going to be complexity. Our brain yeah. power is going to make things more complicated, and we're certainly going to look for ways to move beyond being a simple animal. But you just can't deny that in most other species, the males are males, the females are females, and they mate and they make babies. There's no denying it. It's simple Indeed. science. And it's interesting yep. how sometimes the same factions who want to talk about science, 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 when it comes to things like climate, want to completely ignore science when it doesn't fit the narrative. So I'm really, really glad you brought that up. That's true, Scott. And actually, I was thinking um, there's one other thing I could mention, if you like, and it's maybe sure. more relevant to the, the, whole, the whole dating issue. Um, and that is, I think, that an evolutionary perspective can 
maybe help us in some ways to guide our, our dating lives and our romantic lives. Um, one, one example would be there's a strong argument within evolutionary psychology uh, that our jealousy, um, the jealousy that we experience if our mate gets involved with somebody else, that that's not just a social construct, that that is something sort of uh, part of human nature. Um, it's not the case that we could just as easy, easily learn to be overjoyed if our mate gets involved with somebody else and, and just think, oh, that, well, this is great. I'm sure they uh, they enjoyed themselves when they were cheating on me. Um, I love this person, so um, I'm happy that they're happy. It would be very hard, I think, for people to, to learn to uh, respond that way. We much more readily respond by, by getting jealous and hating it and maybe dumping the person or whatever. Um, and I think that if people recognize that that isn't just a learned reaction, um, it could inform how they conduct their mating lives and, and then their um, dating lives um, in a productive kind of way. If you think that jealousy is just a kind of social invention, you might think, okay, well, it's easy enough to shrug it off. Um, maybe I'll get involved in, in an open relationship. Um, and and yeah, I'm not saying that it's a bad idea necessarily to do that. Um, some, it works for some people, definitely. But for other people, it doesn't work. And I think if they understood that they're probably not going to be able to just shake off their jealousy and they're upset if the person they're in love with gets involved with somebody else, that perhaps they might think, well, actually, no, for me, that doesn't work. Works for some people, doesn't work for me. Um, I think I'm going to look instead for an exclusive relationship. Um, and for, th for them, that might be better. Yeah, that's a very thought-provoking concept because okay, cool. you have people who are interested in and perhaps even actively participating in the swinger lifestyle. Yeah. And for people who that may seem attractive from the outside looking in, it's often the case that once they're actually faced with joining in, they're like, wait a minute, you know, it sounded good to me to screw other guys' wives, but, you know, the part where they get to screw my wife doesn't sound so, yeah. so appetizing anymore. And yet exactly. there are people exactly. out there who actively are involved in that lifestyle and enjoy yeah. it. Do you think it's simply a matter of them being wired differently because, you know, human beings are yeah. all unique? Or do you think there's a certain process they go through where they want to be like that and they go through, for lack of a better word, a desensitization process where – you know, they become more okay with it because they have the end in mind and they want to live that lifestyle and they know they have to conquer this in order to be able to freely enjoy it. Yeah, I think some people belong to both of those categories. So some people just seem to, they just don't seem to mind. Um, then there's there's a, another group of people who they do naturally kind of mind, but they can sort of hack their brains in certain ways. They can get to that point where they can deal with their jealousy and, and it's fine for them. But then I think there's also another group who... I just don't think no matter how hard they tried, they would be able to control their jealousy. They, they just wouldn't be able to learn to enjoy it. Yeah, it's kind of the analogy that I brought up on this show before. When you steal your first car, you're afraid there's a police officer behind every bush just waiting to arrest you. And then by the time you've stolen your 150th car, you just walk up, slim jim it, get in hot wire and drive away without yeah, don't think even about increasing it. Yeah. your heart rate. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what a fascinating discussion. I think that every guy who's listening will be absolutely interested in taking a good look at your book and perhaps grabbing a copy. And the name of the book, again, is The Ape That Understood the Universe. And uh, what are the other nuggets that they're going to find when they dig into that book, maybe above and beyond how human beings sexually relate relative to animals? What are the other parts of that book about? Um, I cover other things, uh, which include, for instance, um, parental care, how we evolved to to look after our kids and how both sexes look after our kids, uh, not just, just the females. Uh, there is a chapter about uh, the evolution of altruistic behavior, so how we evolved to be uh, very, very nice to relatives um, in, in a lot of different circumstances, and also in some cases to non-relatives. 
That's quite uncommon, the fact that we're so nice to non-relatives. So why is that the case? Why are we so different than other animals and how much we cooperate with people who are not related to us? Um, and then there's a big chapter about uh, cultural evolution. Um, and that covers the stuff that not, isn't so biologically grounded. Um, the fact that we, as a species, can do all these kind of things that no other animal could possibly do. Uh, for instance, like like building a rocket ship and flying to the moon, you know, having a bit of a walk around and then flying back. That's something that we um, have been able to do with our culture and our intelligence um, that no other animal could. You can't imagine a chimpanzee um, or, a, or an orangutan, for instance, building a rocket and going to the moon. That's uniquely human. So that's why I've got another chapter on that. Man, we could do deep dives into all of that. And I'm geeky enough about this stuff that I wish we had time to, but it would kind of be yeah. off topic. But the whole idea of humans being the most compassionate species is fascinating. And then yeah. again, I'm just now getting this lightning bolt of realization that every other animal for as long as they've been here has pretty much been the same. I mean, lions are probably still yeah. doing the same thing in the Serengeti they did a hundred thousand years ago, and so are exactly. secretary birds, and so are the little lizards crawling on the ground. And humans are the ones who have increased their knowledge and increased their ability to thrive and increased, exactly. you know, their quality of life. Um, I'm reminded of a joke by a guy who is a lot funnier in writing than he is in person to me. He's kind of weird when he does stand up, but he's a brilliant, brilliant comedy writer named Emo Phillips, who was popular. I don't know. I guess the yeah, zenith yeah, yeah. of his popularity was about 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. And uh, Bill Gates had posted something on Twitter about how life is better for human beings than it ever has been, you know, technology and quality of life. And um, <laughs> Emo Phillips, in his characteristic wit, said, this is altogether more fascinating Consider that most of the other species seem to be going in the opposite direction. <laughs> right, right. Yes, <laughs> All the deer true, are yeah. losing their habitats to humanity <laughs> and, you know, global warming is killing the fish yep. and everything. And I just, as sick as it sounds, it was just kind of funny to me. But I think yeah, you just yeah. said something very real. <laughs> Human beings are the only animals on Earth who really have improved their lot in life based on superior totally. intelligence or whatever it is. It's it's amazing. It is amazing. And it's, it's all culture, right? Because we're, we're yeah. the same animal that we were 3,000 years ago uh, with the same animal that we were 100,000 years ago when we were uh, walking the, the savannas of, of Africa. Basically the, basically the same animal. And yeah. look, look what we've done because of, of culture, right? Well, you know, kind of along those same lines, I grew up in suburban Baltimore, Maryland, and we had cardinals, you know, little red birds with crests that we have here in the United States and pretty much all over the country. And they have a very distinctive call. You know, they kind of sound like they're yeah. saying birdie, birdie, birdie. <laughs> Well, I moved here to Texas, and it took me a couple of years to figure out that the bird calls I was often hearing outside my window that I couldn't identify were actually the cardinals here. The call gotcha. of a Texan yeah. cardinal is different than the call right. of a Maryland cardinal. You know, they're about 1,500 miles removed yeah, from each other. I think much. that's kind yeah. of like a cultural difference. It's like their language is different. Is. Their dialect is different, even in the bird yeah. It's amazing, right? So you, you do find in a lot of uh, songbirds, you do get different dialects in different yeah. re, uh, different regions, and that is culture. They are passed on; uh, th those songs are passed on culturally, uh, exactly like an accent or something like that, like my my New Zealand accent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's passed on. You don't have the Kiwi yeah. accent so much anymore. You sound rather more British. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, man, life is so fascinating, so amazing to be yeah. alive. And, yeah, you know, being curious is. It just pays off so richly just to notice these differences. I completely agree. Yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. Guys, go get yourself a copy of Steve Stewart Williams's 
terrific and I would say somewhat unprecedented book, The Ape That Understood the Universe. You can grab it on Amazon. Um, I'll link you to it directly by going to www.mountaintoppodcast.com front slash ape, A-P-E. Let's make it easy. And uh, Steve, what a brilliant conversation. I love guys who are intelligent and know their stuff so Thanks. well. And it's just a pleasure to have had you on the show. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank, thank you, Scott. Right back at you. And uh, guys, go ahead and go to mountaintoppodcast.com and download everything you can for free. Get the free reports on how to get the first date and the second date. There's also a book you can download on how to handle breakups, not necessarily being broken up with, but when you want to end a relationship, what is the most graceful, effective, and sane way to do that? And there's also another book, a complete ebook you can download for free called Sticking Points Solved. And the title is very descriptive. You can read through actual emails, actual questions I've gotten from guys that I answer with very practical ways to uh, get over the sticking points that most guys deal with in their dating lives or in their relationships. And uh, I made it a point to cover just about every possible sticking point I've ever heard of, frequently at least, in the last 13 years in that book. And you can download it absolutely for free. And also, while you're there at www.mountaintoppodcast.com, be sure to schedule your free 25-minute call with me personally. I'm looking forward to talking to you. If there's a coaching plan that fits, you know, we'll make that happen. Otherwise, it's just good to hear from you, know what's on your mind. That helps me write better newsletters, helps me get better podcast guests on and talk about the issues and topics you want to hear about the most. And with that, until the next episode, this is Scott McKay from San Antonio, Texas for X and Y Communications. Be good out there. The Mountaintop Podcast is produced by X and Y Communications. All rights reserved worldwide. Be sure to visit www.mountaintoppodcast.com for show notes. And while you're there, sign up for the free X and Y Communications newsletter for men. This is Ed Roy Odom speaking for the Mountaintop Podcast.